Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, this week's episode is brought to you by Pizza Trocadero. For my money, the best pizza you can eat in Guelph, Ontario a proud independent family business run by a punk rocker, Trocadero only uses a rich array of fresh ingredients cut by hand and homemade dough made daily, all baked to perfection inside of a stone oven. It's gourmet panzerotti, calzones, wings, salads, garlic bread, breadsticks, and oh man, the pizza, the pizza. Personally, I like the gourmet Domateo with goat cheese, artichoke, roasted red pepper, mushrooms. I sub out the turkey breast for eggplant, but that's just me. Wash the whole thing down with a brio? Man, I am getting hungry just talking about this. Call Pizza Trocadero at 519-829-2444. Visit them at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph and online at trocaderoguelph.ca. T-R-O-K-A-D-E-R-O-G-U-E-L-P-H dot C-A. That's Pizza Trocadero, a place of the good trade. Creative Control with Bish Khan. Hey, how's it going? You know who doesn't listen to this show? A lot of people, actually, but specifically, my in-laws. My father-in-law and my mother-in-law are visiting from Alberta, and I feel like it's safe to tell this story. I came home from work yesterday, and you know, like your oven range hood? You know, the thing over your oven that, that collects the, it's the fan and the light? We've had some issues with it recently. One of the lights just won't work, like one of the light sockets. And when my parents-in-law come over from Alberta, they try to help and fix things. So I came home from work yesterday, and the oven range hood was all dismantled. On the other side of the kitchen, in a whole other room, there was like a hole in the wall where they'd shoved the pipe connected to the oven range hood. They just shoved it somehow. So there's just like a huge catastrophe when I came. They do this all the time. They come over here. I sound like a anti-immigration person right now. They come over here to our province, and they try to fix the house, and they just make it worse, and it costs me thousands of dollars, and I don't get it. And I can't say anything. You can't say anything. It's maddening. That's what I'm going through right now. On a brighter note, just a reminder once again that this Friday I'll be hosting Riverfest Alora, a music festival in Alora, Ontario, featuring performances by... Let's see if I have this off the top of my head. I should know this by now. The Strumbellas, Bahamas, Arkells, 
and Charles Bat- Bradley. Charles Bradley and the Extraordinaries. That's going to be fun. I can't wait for that. And then on Friday and Saturday, I'll be hosting a lot of, I can't even name them all, but a whole bunch of people at the Peterborough Folk Festival. So I'll be doing a lot of hosting at folk festivals and music festivals this weekend, and I'm, I'm into it. I like hosting. If you want me to host something, give me a shout. I'll, I'll host. Why not? On this program, Claire Cameron, a very interesting story. She's an author for, based in Toronto, kind of fell into it. I didn't know this. I talked to her on the show, obviously, and I learned a whole bunch of stuff. She wrote this book, The Bear, which I just read, uh, ahead of her appearance at the Eden Mills Writers Festival uh, on September 14th in Eden Mills, Ontario. And I read The Bear, and uh, it's harrowing. Whether you are a new parent, or even, I presume most of you are offspring of parents, either way, harrowing. And we talked a lot about bears, bear attacks, uh, which is what this story is based on. Anyway, I thought it was really fascinating. I hope you do too. This is myself and Claire Cameron. Writers Festival presents Taste and Transmission, an evening of music and literature at Guelph's E-Bar on Thursday, September 11th. This event features rare full band performances by local luminary Scott Merritt and Toronto's gifted Sandro Perry, plus stimulating readings and discussion by internationally renowned authors and music writers Carl Wilson and Shawn Michaels. Tickets to this all-ages licensed event are available now at the bookshelf, located beneath the E-Bar at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph and at ticketbreak.com. Visit EdenMillsWritersFestival.ca for more information about taste and transmission on September 11th. Despite its best efforts, the E-Bar is not a fully accessible physical space. Dragonfly, dragonfly, Claire Cameron is an acclaimed writer from Toronto whose first novel, The Line Painter, won the Northern Lit Award from the Ontario Library Service and was nominated for an Arthur Ellis Crime Writing Award for Best First Novel. Her latest book is a harrowingly devastating one called The Bear, which is told from the perspective of a six-year-old girl named Anna who must take care of her younger brother in the wilds of Algonquin Park after a horrible, incomprehensible tragedy strikes her family's camping trip. The Bear is available now via Random House of Canada, and Cameron is a participating author at the Eden Mills Writers' Festival, where she'll read on Sunday, September 14th. Here to discuss her work and practice further is Claire Cameron. Hi, Claire. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Now, are you in Toronto? I am in Toronto. A kind of cold and blustery Toronto today. I hope it warms up. It's like a fall day in Toronto, even though... Exactly, (laughs) exactly. You know all those people complaining about the hot weather. I mean, where are they now? I mean, I guess they're reveling in this. The good thing is there's always something to complain about. Exactly. It's too cold. It's too hot. What's going on? Uh, (laughs) And Torontonians, if I might say, good at that. They're good at complaining. 
We complain. Yeah, we do. Bit. It's fine. Guelph people complain a lot, too. That's why we live in Guelph, because we don't like Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, tell us more about the bear and the inspiration for the story. Now, I happen to know that it's inspired by a true story. I guess I'm wondering, really, what inspired you uh, to take this on and, uh, you know, create an adaptation of a real-life event? Uh, well, one of the things was that in 1991, I was leading canoe trips in Algonquin Park, and there was a bear attack um, in October of that year. A black bear killed two adults. So I came back to the park to work the next summer, um, and obviously the attack and what had happened made quite an impression on me. Mm-hmm. But the details were quite vague, and um, I've you know, looked a lot into how bear attacks are reported in the news. And there's often a lot of initial interest, sort of sensational details and very little else. Um, so I knew those sensational details and that was it when I went back the next summer. So I started sort of asking the people I was working with and that sort of thing for details. And I heard stories that were more along the lines of like ghost stories, you know, all sorts of odd theories about what had happened and what the couple had done wrong and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, And then when I started writing The Bear, I actually went back and looked up more detail. And what I found was that the couple had done nothing wrong. Um, This was a very, very unusual event, which is a predatory bear attack. Um, The, you know, the couple were camping. They happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that was almost scarier for me to realize, especially as a new mother with young children and a lover of the wilderness. Um, I take my kids out too but it it was scary to realize that that these things can just happen yeah very random yeah Yeah. exactly now i'm a relatively new father i have a three-year-old boy and a new baby on the way this december and and i have to admit i had (laughs) difficulty reading the bear initially i'm curious when did you decide you wanted to write a book that would make parents cry (laughs) um i actually made uh, so my kids were the same age as the kids in the book when i wrote it and i made myself cry too yeah I also made myself laugh because I'm sure, uh, actually, my friend said this to me the other day that you hear, you get all this parenting advice, you hear all these things, but people rarely tell you how funny it is. You just are in these ridiculous um, situations. <laughs> Your kids do odd things at odd times, uh, especially the three-year-old, I bet, is getting is getting entertaining. Yes. No, absolutely. I love, uh, yeah, it's very fun, but it was, I have to say, like reading... I want to get to your motivation for how you decided to frame this book in a moment, but just reading okay. Anna's in the in the moment reflections on what's going on is is difficult and it's it's jarring just knowing what because the book is framed like if you read the back of the book, if you read any blurbs of the book, you know what you're getting into. But if you were only to read the book Stone Cold, you wouldn't. You would only have Anna's perspective and it's difficult. I find it difficult. Yeah. Uh, having any context going in, you're just like, oh, no. I know what this is, but she doesn't know what this is. And I'm reading her trying to discover what's what's gone wrong. So for me, writing it, I, I kind of... It was more like acting, I'd say. I got um, very into the mind frame of Anna. And, you know, sometimes when I'm writing, it's from a more analytical... You know, if I'm doing a book review or something like that. I'm, I'm really like thinking about what I'm doing, but this was much more instinctual. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and it did feel like acting. And then I was very much seeing the world through the eyes of Anna. And I went from uh, feeling devastated one minute and, you know, crying as I wrote and then laughing and or uh, getting distracted or off. And Anna's voice is very much like that, that it swings. And it, in my opinion, that's a, something that we have as, as children. It's almost a survival skill. The ability to be devastated one moment and then distracted and laughing the next. I really saw that in my five-year-old who I was, you know, talking to and trying to establish the character's emotional scope with. Yeah. Um, and I was fascinated by that. So he could be, you know, we could have ruined his life because we cut his uh, apple in the wrong shape. <laughs> exactly. Minute, yeah. You know, falling and then just all of a sudden falling off his chair because his, his brother farted laughing, 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 you know, right. and I was really interested in that swing. Um, part of my interest in that was because I have quite a bit of experience in the outdoors. I'd I led trips for Outward Bound and a, a mountaineer and that sort of thing. And I've noticed that when we, when I get in rough situations or, you know, something happens or there's a fall or you're off route um, and it gets dangerous, often the people that do the best are able to stay in the moment. Right. So, so they can start, they, you know, maybe you get a plan for what you're going to do in place, but it's the people who can then crack a joke or uh, can start singing Um I remember a guy I was climbing with started at a very bad moment, started singing The Gambler by Kenny Rogers. <laughs> it was just perfect because it was like, okay, you know, we just have to be here and relax and do our best. Um, so I was interested in that as a survival tool. Now, the one major point here to raise is that you, you mentioned that this is based on a real incident and you kind of outlined the circumstances, which were very sad. But you have added this element of children to the real life story, yeah. Um, and which is interesting in itself. And then to take it one step further, and you know, make this narrative decision to tell the story from the perspective of this child. Can you talk about the motivation for that? Yeah, it w- it actually wasn't a decision. It was just something I did. Um, which I'm glad about in retrospect, because I think I just had a voice in my head um, that came from actually my five-year-old was talking all the time. I think it could be <laughs> classified as nattering. <laughs> and I was kind of going crazy. I was also a new, you know, I had a younger kid too, and I was kind of struggling with this tension between my creative life and my, um, my, my writing, my home life, in that my home life was threatening to stample all over my writing. So I, um, I, anyway, that was kind of in the background, but I, I had my, uh, my son talking all the time. So I had this voice, it sort of form in my head, uh, that was his, but not his, it was definitely a character. And I'd finished another book. Um, and I just sat down and I thought, well, why don't I try a short story with this or something? And I just really started writing. Okay. And, I'm glad I did because I think, you know, I can imagine if I said to my agent or editor, oh, I'm going to write a novel in a five-year-old voice only. I think everyone would have tried to talk me out of it, including <laughs> myself, because it just doesn't sound like a good idea. <laughs> no, it doesn't, but it, it it does work. It does work in this book. It works very well. Now, so the primary linguistic research you did, if you will, was just hanging out with your kids? It wasn't, did you do any other sort of acting? You mentioned acting, which I think is really interesting, you know, to occupy 
characters as a, as a novelist, you're doing a little bit of acting or screenwriting, so to speak, um, writing for other characters. But this was totally different. Like, did you do anything beyond just hanging out with little kids? Did you did you do any other research about how kids might process uh, this kind of circumstance? I um, I started to after the first draft. And I started reading about child psychology and that sort of thing. And I actually stopped because I realized that child psychologists are very good at describing a group of kids, but I was writing about one in particular. So I needed to stick to her um, rather than try and generalize or, or make it, you know, I needed to sound, be true to the character as I saw her. So I decided to stick with that. Um, I did read a woman who talked about um, she was a psychologist about a five-year-old, five, six-year-old perception of death mm-hmm. and how right around five, six, they change, they go through a transition often from, um, believing and um, being confused about death and seeing it as sort of an impermanent state to realizing that it's final. And my five-year-old at the time, his grandmother had died the year before. And I just read this and then he said, Oh, when's grandma coming to visit? And, I, you know, I thought we, I, I kind of thought we'd covered that. So we started talking through where she was and why, you know, why she wasn't coming to visit and that sort of thing. And it, as I wrote the book and went through the editing process around six and a half, he all of a sudden clicked in and said, yeah, you know, I understand grandma's dead. He, he kind of, he got it in a different way. Right. So he used that as kind of a backbone for the book. That was, that really interested me. Yeah, no, I can, and I, I can see how that would have informed it. But based, and particularly, and I don't want to ruin anything for anyone, but as we get to the kind of epilogue, uh, no, not the epilogue, just prior to, I suppose, yeah, I don't want to say too much. I don't want to ruin the action of the book for anyone. <laughs> but there is a point where a child psychologist is involved. And yeah. there's a sense of, like, this needs to be dealt with um, and, and articulated. And, and you see the children, uh, well, particularly Anna, struggling with this. And uh, so yeah. I, I assume that's... a that was an extension of those uh, that that research you did. That no, actually, weirdly, and I kind of um, I kind of threw the child psychologist <laughs> in the end of the book under the bus a little bit. She was actually representing me and my misunderstanding of uh, my son and the, and how he saw the world. Because the more I talked to him um, at five, the more I realized that I'd been talking over him. Um, sometimes as a lot of parents are guilty of I think but also that I've been talking for him and at five he was also an articulate enough to talk for himself and I started to understand all these things about his worldview that were very different from mine and very distinct from mine right okay because I had this sort of misconception that he was you know just <laughs> just like a smaller version of me <laughs> um, but I found it, I met a very different person in these conversations we had yeah. Now, speaking of a, a very different person, we have Anna's perspective, and, and she is not only saddled with dealing with this circumstance, she has her younger brother, Stick, to take yeah. care of Alex. Uh, but uh, And you mentioned, you know, how parts of the book eventually made you laugh. Stick is basically kind of helpless comic relief, isn't he? <laughs> I guess he is. Yeah, he uh, he's funny. <laughs> he is a funny little guy. And he's, yeah, how, yeah. how old is Stick? He's nearly three. He's nearly three. Okay, so yeah. his, because I was I was trying to figure out his age, and trying to relate to my own son because my son is a natterer and he has right. a, lo- a lot of vocabulary. Sticks vocabulary is very limited, so I wasn't yeah. sure how old he was. Yeah, yeah. So my younger son was much less chatty. So oh. their dynamic very much reflects my kids' dynamics at the time. 
Yes. <laughs> but but I have two boys, which is an interesting point because um, when I wrote the first draft, I, I thought I was, you know, using my son's emotional framework for the character and that sort of thing. But it, the story was about two boys. And I had a larger section where um, the older child has grown up. And yeah. I couldn't get it to ring true. And I just, you know, I was really struggling with it. It was actually my agent, Denise Bukowski, who said, well, what do you think? Maybe that's a girl. And I went into this sort of funk and I pouted. Because <laughs> I didn't want to hear, you know, when you, you think you're nearly done. That was just not what I wanted to hear. But I thought about it for a while. And then I went back and, and read the draft. And I realized how much more of myself was in Anna than I'd even begun to realize. And so when I, uh, and it, uh, the little boy character is obsessed with things that I was, um, popsicles and band-aids and, you know, in came the Barbies and that sort of thing. So when I changed Anna to a girl, it made the adult voice click. Right. So I think it's, you know, I can't say I remember what it was like to be five, but I did go through, my father died when I was young and I did cope with grief when I was little. So there's a lot of that in the book, too. Interesting. Okay. So you really, I mean, and as well, you 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 have a pretty good relationship with Algonquin Park. You're, you're in this story. Uh, yeah, I guess. But you only find that out after, right? Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, people have pointed out more and more things. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah. I, I will say, I mentioned earlier that I struggle with the book on a, just on a parental level. Um, but one other aspect of it, the language is, is very raw, naive, and innocent, and on one hand it fills you with dread uh, because you know that you have this very fragile narrator, narrator rather. but I also think I got somewhat impatient at times. Now, does, does this mean that I hate children? <laughs> I don't know. I've always had this, you know when you have, um, you're in the park? And you have a very strong reaction to like a seven-year-old or something. And some of them you just love and some of them you ha- you just automatically hate. And yeah. I, I, I can't stand that in myself because you think, who am I to hate a seven-year-old? But, <laughs> but I think that, <laughs> that kids are just people and you have reactions to people all the time. And they're no different. So, uh, But I think in this book, that it's quite a demanding read. And I, m- I remember when I was doing the page proofs, like near the very end of the um, publishing process, I realized that it was, you know, it was almost like being grabbed by the lapel and having Anna, you know, talk how demanding a five-year-old can be. <laughs> um, and I think the book is a bit like that. It, uh, and I, I, I hope it also rewards readers who are, are willing to, to give it their attention. But um, I can only speak from my perspective, and forgive me if this is disparaging in any way, but at one point, at, at very at early on, I was like, I don't know if I can hang out with this kid on this yeah. trip right now, because I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know, I want to help. Like, I just, I, it was a weird right, thing. Right, I, was, right. I wanted to, I, there was a protective urge, but it was also like, come on, it, it reminded me of like my kid, maybe just be like, at some point, as you say, you, sometimes with kids, you're just like, come on, let's just get this going. Okay, like, how about trying to get out, out there to the house in the morning? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's the kind of thing <laughs> I was like, life. this was a way different situation. But yeah, then at some other at various point, and I want to ask about this, because at one point, Anna internalizes what she calls the black dog. Yeah, the scary thing she saw. And, and, and I want to ask what prompted this sudden visceral reaction to the menace in her life. But I can also say that that's roughly where it grabbed me again and i and i couldn't i was like oh no and then i was just riveted i read the rest of the book in like one sitting because i couldn't there was just a point and i again this is all subjective but there's just a point where she starts to when she starts to own the situation a bit more i got back into it somehow does that make any sense 
Yeah. Oh, I think it does. Okay. Uh, because it's a story about her growing up, isn't it? Like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it takes place in a very short period of time, but um, she's a strong little girl. And she comes, she starts to, in her own mind and her own way, realize the danger she's in and her responsibility to her brother. But she also senses within herself a darkness. Yes. Which is bleak. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. I think it is, and I think it isn't. I, I like to think of this as sort of a, not sort of, but an ultimately hopeful book that these bad things happen to all of us um, and we go through very hard things in life, but in some ways they do become part of you. And if you keep working at it and keep struggling through, they can become a source of your strength mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. I really believe that, that they, um, but something like grief never goes away. It's something that you re-experience at different parts of your life. So I mentioned that my father died when I was young. Yeah. I think a lot of this book is about, uh, I'm his age now. So he died when he was 41. Um, and this book was a lot about me seeing things from his perspective. So I'd always been, you know, more on Anna's side, sort of selfishly obsessed with my loss um, but I am older now and I have kids and I realize what hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals. You can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. It must be must have been for him to leave kids behind. Right. would be devastating. So this book is really about coming through those different perspectives for me. Yeah, I can I can see that. One question I had is about bears in society. <laughs> that, sounds, <laughs> that sounds weird. It sounds like we're being overrun. But <laughs> there's a key moment in the book where it's it's, and I don't know if this is this happens early on or not, but it kind of becomes clear that. One of the things that Anna, beyond her, beyond Stick, beyond her brother, one of the things she's liking around is a teddy bear. Yeah. And this is shocking in the end to the people that discover, I mean, it, it's, it's, there's a misunderstanding actually about, about this teddy bear. But bears in society, uh, that's all, that my only note here is bears in society. And I wonder if about our... <laughs> I, I, I can run with that if you want. I wonder about our relationship with the bear. Um, because on one hand, it's become a cuddly symbol, but on another, they are very dangerous. Uh, in, in, in the context of camping, uh, whatever it is, like if you encounter a bear, it's a bad situation. Sometimes. Some, often they're harmless. Right. Often scared of us. Are you trying to, I guess that's my point, are you trying to impart anything about bears in telling this story? Well, I hope near the end that the reader 
um, <laughs> is left with some sense of my sense of bears, which is that they're wild animals. And um, this, I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, how um, this couple didn't do anything wrong or anything to bring this upon themselves. Similarly, this is not some dynamic, um, this, you know, this isn't a bear that went out to like uh, ruin people's world or anything. This is a, in, in the real story, it, what happened in Algonquin Park, this is a lone male bear who is young and they are often the ones who launch predatory attacks, very rare predatory attacks. But um, he was probably without a territory, probably had been kicked away from his mother to make room for new babies earlier that spring and was hungry um, and probably hadn't come across humans before. So tried to take a risk on a new food source. So he's just trying to eat. Right. And it's hard to put a lot of blame, when, you know, as we are meat eaters ourselves. I think we understand that, too. Um, so that's my hope is that we, it, they're not teddy bears. They're not spirit bears. They're not all these different things. They're, they're wild animals. Right. Okay. And if we be realistic about that and treat them as such, you know, there's ways to steer clear. Have you heard from victims or family members of people who have been, uh, impacted by, by bear attacks uh, after writing this book? Yeah, I've had, um, well, people have been getting t in touch with me with bear stories. So I've, ha I've heard a lot of bear stories. I have a bear story section on my website. Oh, where okay. people, Yeah, where um, people have sent stories of their encounters and that sort of thing. And what kinds of feedback are you getting about the, the story you've written? Um, well, I think people that are... I mean, the people, it was reviewed in People magazine, <laughs> and uh, there is this cult call-out line that said, the bear could do for camping what Jaws did to beaches. And I just thought, oh, am I allowed to swear? Well, I won't swear, but... <laughs> you, can, you can swear. I, I'd actually prefer it if you swore. <laughs> well, I thought, holy shit, what have I done now? Oh, my God, I can't believe you I said that. Went, like, I'm an avid outdoors person, and the last thing I want to do is scare people off. But I do feel that a lot of our conflict with bears it happens because we're unrealistic about them. Hmm. You know, that we think of them as something that are there to take pictures of, or we, you know, people try and get close or people try and have some interaction with them or they're not. I mean, it's very simple. Often it's looking after your garbage and making sure that they don't become dependent on human food that eliminates most of the conflicts right there. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, a lot of people who have gotten in touch with me are, you know, it's sort of self-selecting, isn't it? They're fairly like-minded. <laughs> have you have you heard from uh, any members of the family that the attack was, the rather that the book was actually based on? Uh, no. No. Oh. No, I haven't. Um, and I actually had, so I had, as you can imagine, I thought long and hard about how I was going to handle that. Um, I went from maybe I should get in touch and, tell them about this but it's a completely fictitious story so that didn't feel right because I um I don't know that I've sort of stepped this out but I heard this story about these couples and I went for this couple in Algonquin Park and I went from my memories of the story rather than from the facts when I was writing oh, okay so like one step sort of falsified there but then adding the kids too I made it into a completely it's very detached from the couple. Um, so I didn't want the family to feel that this was a book about their relatives. 
because it isn't. Um, but I did end up mentioning them in the author's note. Um, mm-hmm. I, because I'm from the area where this happened and so many of my close friends and relations were impacted by this attack as I was, I felt it was wrong to completely ignore it and pretend that it wasn't under there. Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose an argument could be made. I mean, do, you, do you have, I don't know if you have these facts at the ready. I mean, how many, there aren't, bear attacks are not common, but they occur. Yeah, they're not common. Um in, okay, so if you're in a national park or a provincial park, you're much more like you. A lot of people there's fatal accidents every year, but they tend to be from bee stings, dog bites, and car accidents. <laughs> Those oh. are really or falls. Those are the things you've got to watch out for. Right. Um, Algonquin Park has there was this bear attack, and then there was one in the 70s or so. There's you know it's it's very very rare. The other thing is that a lot of the attacks you hear about are encounters with grizzlies when people surprise a grizzly and sort of get within their zone by accident but a predatory black bear attack is exceptionally rare right so right okay so the, the, this is not a common occurrence and you like you you're you're an avid camper yeah and you're you have a long relationship with algonquin park yeah with algonquin park and i um and i've been out west mountaineering too and i work for outward bound in the u.s so in Oregon and out west in California. So and that's have, the thing too. Have you ever felt at risk camping? Have you ever had uh, bear encounters or any other kind of uh, wild animal encounters? I've seen lots of bears. Um, I tree planted up near Hearst, Ontario, which is probably where I saw the most bears because um, that is, the, and I completely deserve this. That <laughs> we where we were in northern Ontario in Hearst was where they take. Uh, bears that have gotten too sort of bothersome in Algonquin Park, and they dropped them in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and that was where we were. Oh. So these poor bears had been used to eating human garbage because this was in the 90s. There weren't as good garbage practices. Right. And they get dumped in the middle of nowhere with only a few tree planting ca- camps around. So they um, almost live in our camp. Um, so I was in very close quarters with black bears all the time there. Um, but to the point where it became almost like a joke, you know, like a, a bear, uh, rolled over onto my friend's tent and fell asleep lying across his legs. And, you know, and we all got up and scared it off, but it was funny, you know, (laughs) and I remember waking up in the middle of the night and, uh, hearing crunch, 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 crunch. And I looked at, I unzipped my tent and someone had left apples out on a table, a big box of apples. And there was a black bear there just taking a bite out of each one and chucking it over his shoulder. And he'd take another bite out of one and chuck it over his shoulder. It sounds like my son. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that was it. I, start, I started laughing and then I just like yelled and clapped and banged a little bit and it went away. Right. Um, and, you know, they're not that big and they're kind of cute and you can forget what you're dealing with, I think. <laughs> All right. So most of your bear encounters are relatively jolly and jovial oh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. i mean and that's that's typical and that is why this what happened in algonquin park stuck so vividly in my mind was because i could not sort it out i couldn't figure out what on earth had happened um it was such a disconnect yeah there when i was camping in algonquin park there was always sort of one of the things we always said is oh you should camp on an island and you might not even have to hang your food or protect it from the bears because they'll just swim off they'll never come near you on an island and of course the attack in algonquin park happened on an island 
And that was my first sense that, oh, maybe I, <laughs> I don't know quite what I think I do. Yeah, you know? I mean, as we've sort of established, it's very random. Uh, you, you're you're hanging out with apple-eating bears and chase them off, but in the wrong in the right in the wrong circumstance, things could have gotten ugly or vicious there. Yeah, I mean, there's starting. There's a guy at the University of Calgary named Stephen Herrero, who's um, yeah, I think he's actually retired from the University of Calgary, but he's written a really good book, and he has a huge database of all the bear attacks in North America, and he's the one that's starting to sort of pin down the reality behind the patterns in the attacks and how we can protect ourselves and protect the bears. Okay. Um, so he's the one that's just recently come out with a study that's identified these lone male young male bears as the ones that are black bears that are the ones that are more likely to launch a predatory attack. Whereas just before he actually crunched the numbers, I think most of us were spending time worried about mothers with cubs, right, which right. is something to worry about too. You want to stay away from them because they can be very def- defensive, but they're not like they're there's, I don't think a recorded example of a mother with cubs launching a predatory attack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, we're still learning. I mean, we we don't know that much about bears. It's amazing, but yeah. we don't. Well, it's a very fascinating book. I want to ask you about what first compelled you to write. Um, and I want to go back a few years. I imagine uh, what what first yeah. what, <laughs> what first compelled you to to, to start writing. Um, okay, so I was I was think I think I was around thirty. I wasn't one of these people who you know, grow, grew up writing in my diary or I didn't always, I was too impatient and I was, I'm like a runner and a rock climber. I couldn't sit still long enough to write before then. Right. Um, and I actually wanted to be, uh, I went through this stage where my husband was doing his PhD and I was bugging him all the time and he was just working all the time. I thought, well, I need to do something else. So I started writing an album, like a music, uh, it was just when GarageBand came out, so I was I had a home studio set up, and I was going to make an album and become like a rock star. <laughs> oh, you're a musician. Well, no, not really. That was the problem. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so I I do play guitar, uh, but not that well. And I sing, but I was in um, a cor- like a choir when I was little, and I've never been able to shake that sort of enunciation. But then I have quite like hard rock tastes. So I was trying to do this like, <laughs> this kind of like hard edge, a little bit electronic album with this choir girl voice and very few skills. Wow. Huh. <laughs> so it stunk. It was terrible. Um, and I got really frustrated because I wor- must have worked on it for about a year. And the thing, the only thing after a year that I really had to show for any of it was... Um, a song called Painting Lines that was about a woman who went on a road trip across Canada. Okay. And, and I looked at those lyrics and I was like, well, the, you know, if you take away the awful guitar and the bad voice and like, whatever else I'd put in there, the lyrics aren't bad. And that actually became the, the basis for my first novel. Oh, wow. Uh, line Painter. So, I don't know, I guess I figured I could type better than I could play the guitar, (laughs) (laughs) which I, yeah, I don't know. That's how it started, though. Wow, okay, so it was just, that's a really, that's an interesting story. I've heard a few stories like that where people are, uh, you know, maybe they're an accountant and very successful, but they just have this restlessness within them, but you, you almost didn't know what you were doing, and, and this just sort of fell upon you. I definitely had the restlessness. I still do. (laughs) Yeah, but this became, I mean, I've always written and um, it's not, I just hadn't thought of it as the thing. 
Right. You know, it doesn't surprise. I, I, I dabbled, but it just, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't really focused on it. No, it's amazing. That's an amazing story. No, you say you have hard rock taste. I can't help but ask. <laughs> okay. So I'd say at my core, I'm a Neil Young fan. Uh huh. And then I can follow him the two directions. So, you know, you go off like into the folk stuff or you can go into the more like feedback and guitar. Crazy Horse and, kind and of stuff. And my taste goes both ways, yeah. Okay, interesting. Have you seen Neil Young and Crazy Horse? Have you seen Neil Young? Of course. Oh. <laughs> I'm just asking. I've seen him like a lot of times, like a lot. Oh, yeah. yeah, me yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. I have so many opinions. And I have to be careful who I go with because I, I, I saw him most memorably one time in Finsbury Park in London, England, and it was a fairly small venue. Uh, and I was with a group of people, but one guy in our group started complaining about his whiny voice and then wanting him to play all the hits. Yeah. And I, I was like, oh, <laughs> I had to remove myself from the scene so I could like properly take it in. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. That's always, I, I had that experience a little bit when I went on the, did you, did you happen to see the Greendale tour? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I rather enjoyed I it. In London, is that right? I think that was like, or mid-2000s? Yeah, it would have been, yes. Well, yeah, 2003 or something like that, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw it in London. You saw it in London. Oh, were you living yeah. in London at the time? In England, yeah. Oh, okay. So I saw him in, saw it in Toronto, and I rather enjoyed it. I enjoyed the fact that he wasn't just playing his own yeah. hits, and he was taking a risk, but people didn't like that. They didn't. They, yeah. they were yelling at him to play Powderfinger. Like, yeah. <laughs> Shut up, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I like it when artists take little risks, like, or big risks like that. I know, and it's just him too, right? Like I'll be, I'll be open-minded about lots of things, but not that. Yes. Anyway, he. I, I, so, were you? You liked Greendale? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Good. I really did. Okay. Yeah. I just want to make sure we're on the same page. Yeah. Yeah, we're there. <laughs> now, generally, at the towards the end of an interview, I would ask someone uh, about the in terms of their practice, what's next? But with you, it could be very unpredictable. <laughs> you seem to fall into writing books that uh, when the when the inspiration strikes you, you, uh, you might have music within you. I don't know. Claire Cameron, what, <laughs> what is next for you? I'm trying to be a little more orderly because you know what I do is I often just impulsively start books that I finish and then decide I don't like them. So between The Lime Painter and The Bear, I wrote three, which I call my dead books, oh. uh, which I think isn't that uncommon, you know, but it's very depressing. Because <laughs> they, they, it's not that I didn't do anything; it's that I rejected them myself. They, they're just not; they didn't turn out how I wanted them to. Um, so you just have three books lying around, not doing anything. Yeah, <laughs> I know. That's it was it's really it was really hard to. But well, you know what I was doing was I was learning to write because I didn't go through my twenties submitting short stories to journals, and I didn't do my MFA, and I haven't done all that stuff, so. Uh, I just wish I could practice on short stories <laughs> instead of novels. Well, so, it, it, so I am writing again, but I just hope it's not one of these dead books. <laughs> okay, so sorry. So beyond the three dead books, you're, you're writing something else. Yes, I hope I'm writing a live one now. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, writing. Yeah. And it's in progress. It's on. It's. It feels like it's going somewhere. Yeah, I have um, sixty-one thousand two hundred and thirty-five words. I think that seems pretty good. Yeah, I'm getting there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many pages that is. It sounds like a lot of words. My goodness. <laughs> it is. And is it? Is it? Uh, will it be a thought of... I know you're right in the midst of it, but will it be a huge departure from things we've... From the Lion Painter or the Bear? I mean, the Bear obviously was quite a departure in some ways. Well, I keep hearing that. I, 
Um, I don't know. I don't, I never know. I wrote the line painter, um, and I was really surprised. I thought of it as a love story. And I was really surprised to hear people say how creepy and suspenseful it was. I remember I went to visit my agent in the UK because I lived there at the time. And he's, he was like, oh, yes, this is literary suspense. And I was like, what? Like I had, <laughs> I just didn't. And now I see that clearly. But I don't think, I don't think that way while I'm writing. It's much more internal than that. So I don't know. Well, you, you, with The Lion Painter, you were ascribed this kind of crime writer um, yeah. generic distinction. Oh, that was a surprise, yeah. And then with The Bear, people are comparing you to Peter Benchley, who wrote Jaws, so that you're getting the kind of horror. I don't think I don't think people quite know what to do with you. Well, I don't think I know what to do with myself, maybe? I don't know. I just, I but I don't mind about that. Like, I, I'll just write, and then we can figure it out. I hope that people enjoy reading it, but... Maybe with time this will sort out. I don't know. No, I, I, like, I appreciate that you came to writing sort of later in life, and it sort of happened, as you described, sort of out of another circumstance. But are you an avid reader? Are there people you admire uh, or oh, yeah, look yeah, up yeah, to? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've always been a huge reader. Huge, huge, huge. So style, stylistically or, or in terms of a vision, uh, are there people that uh, you can see, who's, you can feel their influence in your work at all? or? Um, well, it's more the other way around that I have all sorts of people that I love stylistically and I try to shake their influence. You know, when you're starting out, you have this, um, this sort of impulse to mimic and things. So for me, it's been more, you know, I have to be careful about what I'm reading when I'm writing and that sort of thing. But one of my books that I just love is The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As a start, like those, and the, that's one where I just read paragraphs and sentences. And I've started doing that with all the pretty horses of his too. I, yep. But I don't, I'm never going to write like that, but I just love what it does to my mind. <laughs> I, I, I feel like, hmm, now obviously you've just done this to me, but now that I rethink about, when I kind of think about reading the bear, I can kind of see that, that influence now. That. Yeah, no. I, I mean, uh, in, you know, I, he just sees the world in such a different way, but he sees the world in a way that's so thoroughly true to his characters and his setting and the story he's trying to tell. Right. But, you know, that's so I don't want to write like him, but I would love to do that as thoroughly as he does. I'll, I'll never forget being on about page 15 of The Road. Um, and, you know, it's about a man and his son, and they're, you know, sort of this awful burnt world in yeah. their, their shopping cart. So I remember being on page 15 and I could picture everything in the, on the earth that was around them and everything about them. And I went back and looked on what, how many words he'd given me to base that, this huge mental picture that I had. And it was almost nothing. Yeah. It's like these tiny little strokes, very sparse, very, very sparse prose. And, and so, you know, he he in that book in particular, if I recall correctly, there's like uh, there's no punctuation. It's very minimal. Yeah. Um, and, and in some senses, the way Anna tells the story of the bear, there's punctuation, but there's these sort of run-on thoughts, run-on sentences that are very vivid. And uh, I can I can totally see that connection. I'm not saying you're no Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> I was yeah. I'm not trying to put Bobby you in. Cormac. <laughs> no, he's fan. He he is. He's clearly one of the best uh, who's ever yeah. done this. And uh, yeah. and I can see where, and I uh, within what I'm saying, I can see you shaking him off. I can see him <laughs> being a guidepost, but you also being like, no, 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 I can do this. I can do this on my own. Well, I'm not him. No. I'm never going to be him. <laughs> well, 
Although that would be great. I'd like to see Cormac McCarthy cut a electronic record on GarageBand. That's exactly. what I want to see. Try that, huh? <laughs> well, Claire, it's a pleasure to speak with you. I want to tell folks that your new book, uh, The Bear, is out now via, uh, it's Random House, isn't it? Yeah, I don't Penguin know. Random House. Penguin Random House, that's right. And uh, that you're appearing at the Eden Mills Writers Festival on Sunday, September 14th, and that for more information, people can visit claire-cameron.com or edenmillswritersfestival.ca. Have you been to the uh, festival uh, in Eden Mills before? I never have. I'm really excited about it. It's nice. There's such a good lineup of authors, too. It's amazing. Yeah, are you looking forward to seeing or meeting anyone in particular? Or are you just... Yeah, lots of them. Well, um, Elizabeth de Marfia. De Marifa, yeah, she's a friend of mine, and I don't even know how to say her last name. Exactly. Well, exactly. <laughs> and so I've I've just chatted with her on Facebook and that sort of thing. But I'm so, and I, we think we were in a grade eight class together. For anyway, I'm really excited to get reacquainted with oh, her. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, she's she's a lovely, lovely. She used to live in Guelph, where I'm calling you from. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. 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 So she's. I think she's in Saint John. Anyway, we shouldn't talk about where she is. <laughs> we'll let her tell people where she is maybe I'll have her on the show and we can that talk about it well it's, it's going to be a great to uh, have you here and I, I, again I, I thank you so much for your time and uh, for being on the show great thank you very much hey thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna you can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com that's creative with a K control with a K 933 at gmail.com you can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.